Reggae Uprising podcast family and welcome to another episode. If you are fresh and new to Reggae Uprising podcast, it is all about connecting the African diaspora through wisdom, overstanding, inspirational stories, all backed by a soundtrack of sweet reggae music. If you haven't already subscribed to Reggae Uprising podcast, please do so wherever you are listening. But the best place, obviously, is to subscribe via daniel.live. So that is D-A-N-I-E-A-L dot live. That link is also in the description as well. Our regular listeners will already know here at Reg Uprising Podcast, not only do we feature guests, we also have our special series like the one we did just last month in October, celebrating Peter Tosh's Earthstrong with our four part series all throughout October, celebrating his life and of course his wonderful works as well. So we have our special series that we feature every so often. And also when we do feature our guests, as we do not like to restrict their speech, but we do like to keep our episodes to about an hour. So if we have a guest who wants to share more than an hour's worth of their life's works and journey, we what we tend to do is separate it into different parts. So if you're just tuning in now, it's the first time you're listening to Reggae Uprising podcast. This is the third part of Professor Hakim Adi's interview. So if that is the case, you want to go back a couple of episodes, go to part one, start from that very beginning one so that you're all up to speed. For those of you that are all up to speed, we're going to get straight back into this interview. This is part three Featuring our guest, Professor Hakim Adi. So you touched on earlier a little bit about your sacking from Chichester. Would you like to elaborate more on that and give us the context of how all of this happened? Yeah, I, I can explain essentially what's happened. I was employed by the University of Chichester since 2012. I worked at the University of Chichester since 2012. In 2015, I was made professor of history of Africa and the African diaspora. So I became the first person of African heritage in this country to become a, to be made a history professor. And then soon after that, we held what we call the History Matters Conference in London in 2015. And that conference was set up to discuss why so few young black people study history in this country, particularly at university level, but even at school level, there's a bit of a problem. Not very many young black people study history. So we held the conference to really look at why that was the case. Um, At that time, history was the third most unpopular subject for young black people at university, only agriculture and veterinary science were more unpopular. So the conference was held to look into why that was the case and also to do something about it. And to cut a long story short, one of the recommendations of that conference was to the idea of setting up a special course designed for 
slightly older students, over 25 years old, students who had been put off history um, at school, but actually loved it and wanted to engage in it, wanted to do some research, maybe they wanted to interview people or investigate something. And so to set up a course to train them as historians. And that was geared especially for people of African and Caribbean heritage. So that course, that master's program, we call it an MRES, Masters by Research, was set up in, first started teaching in 2018. And it ran successfully for five years, recruited people from Africa, the Caribbean, Asia, as well as US, Canada, uh, Caribbean, as well as from Britain. And it produced, uh, in that time, about seven of those students who graduated from the course went on to become PhD students, six of them at the University of Chichester itself. So it did everything it was intended to do. Students loved it. It produced historians and so on. But then in... Uh, the summer of this year, May, June this year, the university said it was suspending recruitment to that course. Um, And the reason that they gave was they said, well, there weren't enough students on it, even though it had recruited twice a year for the last five years and so on. So they suspended it. And then they, a couple of months later, they used... The, the fact of that suspension to sack me. So they basically said, okay, you're no longer teaching this course, or this course no, this course no longer exists, and we're kind of making you redundant as a result of that. And that's very, very unusual, because at universities, courses close all the time for various reasons. It's very unusual that somebody is, is sacked because the university has closed the course and particularly for that reason so um, at the time you know it was fairly clear that that was a kind of discriminatory act you're closing down a course on the history of Africa and the African diaspora which has mainly black students on it and then you're using that to sack one of the few black, black professors of history in this country And then, as a result of my sacking, that left all my postgraduate history students, 16 black postgraduate history students, 10 of them doing PhDs, 6 of them doing master's programs, without any supervision, anyone to teach them, and so on. So that is basically what happens. And so it's really like a somebody's written a thinly veiled racist attack. You just, everything that's been built up over the last five or six years was was smashed. Uh, so that was essentially the situation. The, the students got together and started a, a defense campaign to defend the cause, to defend my post, um, set up an online petition, that soon got, you know, I think over 12,000, 13,000 signatures just in a few weeks. People signed letters of protest. There were all kinds of things in the press and, you know, the the mainstream papers and so on and so forth. But um, to no avail, made no difference. The university carried on, uh, sacked me, 
had no plan for the students. So we have a situation now where, as I say, 16 students are in a state of limbo. They've got nobody uh, teaching them, nobody supervising their research. They haven't been told anything by the university. The course has effectively been closed. Um, despite all the protests that have, as I say, gone on and people signing petitions all over the world and so on. So that's basically the situation. Um, obviously, that there, there are, or there, there will be, we're in the process of launching various legal uh, cases against the university um, for what they've done to me, what they've done to the students, what they've done to the course. And we encourage everybody to support those efforts. We do need to raise money to pay for the lawyers because there's there's also been problems with my union not supporting me and the students not being supported by their student union and so on. So there are a lot of problems. People can read all about that online on our um, web page, uh, historymatters.online. And you can see everything connected with the campaign, and petitions, GoFundMe, everything uh, that's happened. So that's that's basically the situation, not to go into it uh, too much, but that's basically the situation that exists at the moment. So as a result of that, the course, the Master's Programme in the History of Africa and the African Diaspora, which was the only course of its kind in Britain, in fact in Europe, the only degree course on the history of Africa and the African diaspora that has been eliminated. There's no course now existing in this country or anywhere in Europe. And obviously future students have been denied that possibility of studying. So we think it's a very serious attack. Um, needs to be taken very seriously. It's really kind of showing contempt for the history those who teach the history and those who study the history. And so we think it's very, very serious and uh, that, that everybody should know about it. So the students that are obviously involved, how far were they within the course? Had they just started the course? Were they near the end of the course? Did it mean that they couldn't complete the course? Can you give more information on those aspects of it? Well, the students who were on the master's course, uh, were most of them were getting towards the end of the course so they have been unable to complete that and there are about six of them but I also had 10 PhD students who were in various stages of completing their PhDs some had nearly completed them some had just started and so it's affected them as well so as I say 16 students in total have been affected by my sacking because the university has nobody who is a specialist in the history of Africa and the African diaspora. So the closure of the calls and my sacking not only affected students on the master's course, it also affected 10 other PhD students. Six of those had come through the same master's course, were graduates of the master's course and are now doing PhDs. So it's had a kind of massive effect. And those 16 students, that's the biggest cohort of black postgraduate history students in Britain. 
no other university had so many students. Um, so it's, it's a big attack on 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 those students and on um, you know what we've managed to build at the University of Chichester. So correct me if I'm wrong, these students have actually paid for the course and then not received the full course because of yes, everything that's, that's happened? Yes, yes, that's correct, yeah. And obviously you're taking, they're taking legal action um, with regards to this. How does this actually work in terms of what Chichester is, or maybe I don't know how much information they've told you in terms of what Chichester has said in defence of the reasons why the students have paid for something and then not received what they've paid for, basically? Well, the university hasn't said anything. I mean, the students have asked them several times to explain what's going on. The students haven't even been told that I've been sacked. Students haven't been given any information about what has happened um obviously they know what's happened but the university hasn't communicated that information to them and in fact the university hasn't contacted didn't contact students before the students contacted them and the students wrote various letters of complaint which the university didn't answer at the moment the students both the the mres students the master students and the phd students have put in a joint complaint which the university is investigating if i can use that term um at the moment and we expect to hear the result of that investigation within the next uh, week or so um so that that is the situation at the moment and obviously that internal uh, investigation has to happen before other action can be taken with other bodies that uh, monitor universities and monitor the uh, you know the experience that students have had at universities so that internal process has to be undertaken first before other types of investigation can be held so in the meantime these students aren't able to obviously have access to learning like we've already said access to what they've already paid for and it's actually stopping them in moving forward in their own careers that is absolutely correct yes they can't because i was the person who was supervising their their work um they're they're all engaged in writing dissertations of one sort or another whether at master's level or phd level and the University of Trichester has nobody else with any expertise to undertake that work. And in fact, the students have said they don't want anybody else. They want me to supervise their work because they've all come to the university to work with me or to learn with me or to be in the course which I set up. So it's not they're not there for any other reason. And so they've said they want, uh, you know, they want basically they want what they paid for which is to be supervised by somebody who's a specialist in that particular field of history and that they're not getting they're not getting that and with regards to your sacking what was the reasoning that was given it, was it just purely the fact that um, the course that you were teaching no longer existed and there was no consultation there was no conversation you just received notification that you were sacked yeah 
that's the essence of it. Um, the course that I was teaching was no longer in existence. And so that was used really as an excuse. Um, because obviously, as I've explained, I'm supervising 10 PhD students. Um, and previously, I used to teach on other courses. I mean, I taught various aspects of the history of Africa and the African diaspora to undergraduate students as well. Um, so the university basically decided that those courses which I had taught in the past would no longer be taught. And so everything to do with Africa and the diaspora has basically been closed down at that university. And um, yeah, the university has said that uh, I'm no longer required. That's, that's the essence of what has happened. So can you pinpoint anything as to why this has been instigated? Like you said, it was it was obviously put into that university, like you said, in 2018. Um, so you would have thought that they were open to obviously, well, they were open to, you know, producing a course like this that, like you said, isn't anywhere else um, in the whole of Europe. Can you, can you put forward any reasons as to why you think this has happened now? Well, I mean, you can put forward, you can, I can tell you what the university says. The university says that, um, well, the university says they want to cut costs. And so to cut costs, they need to get rid of people. That's what they say. And so they, they then say that, um, you know, because the particular this particular course that I taught on did not recruit enough students to make money for the university. Uh, therefore, they're going to get they're going to get rid of that course, and because they've got rid of that course, then they're going to get rid of me. That's what they say. But I think what has to be, you know, understood is that, and what everybody is saying is that, you know, when you set up a course in order to deal with a problem in society. The problem in society being that there are not very many black history students at universities. So you set up a course to solve that problem. The university knew that. They also know that it would take, you know, it might take many years to deal with that problem. And they also knew that you have to publicize widely such a course. Um, now, the university never did any publicity for the course. Any publicity that was done was done by me or done by the students on social media and so on. So if you don't publicize something very widely, then probably it's not going to attract hundreds of people. But the course did attract students not just once a year, but twice a year because we ran it every every September and every January. And as I said, it was successful, it produced students who went on to do PhDs and so on. So the arguments of the university that it didn't attract enough students are not really, don't really hold much water because if you want a course to attract more students, you have to publicize that course. Uh, if you publicize it and put out that it exists, then people will come to it as, as it was as I said, we recruited students from, from the US, from Canada, from the Caribbean, from, because they happened to know about it. If more people knew about it, then 
more people would would uh, would be recruited. So the arguments at the university are not very uh, compelling, to put it mildly. And so it seems that they just basically they don't care, um, or then they they've decided that this kind of uh, course is not of interest to them for whatever reason. Uh, and, and in fact, as I've explained, it also seems as if they're, uh, you know, not even interested in having this aspect of history as part of, uh, you know, like a general degree course on history. So it, it seems that they've just taken, um, they're just hostile. I can't explain why they've become hostile. I can only explain uh, the impact that this has had. And, uh, you know, as I've explained, you know, this is the only course of its kind. If you close it down, it's going to have a definite impact. If you sack a profess, that's going to have a definite impact. And it seems they just don't care because they have no plan in place to deal with the 16 students or actually more, yeah, 16 students that have been left. No plan whatsoever. So it doesn't, it just appears that... uh, you know, anyway, I can only say this is what they've done. Why, what their thinking is or what their, you know, I can't tell you because uh, they haven't discussed it with me. All they have said is the course did not recruit sufficient students. So that's uh, if that's what they're saying, then that's all I can say to you. I can't, I can't, I can't say any more than that. But I can tell you the impact that it's had. It's had a you know a very very serious impact. Now we will of course leave those links in the description um, for people to obviously find out more information, connect, and support as well. What is the what is the ultimate goal through um, the litigation that the students are now going to go through? What is the the best case scenario for the students? Well. Yeah, I mean, it's, that's a very difficult question to answer because um, there are two things. One is that the the university must be held to account. You, you cannot just act in this way um, and destroy something that's so important and vital and is trying to solve a problem and, and treat people in this way as if they don't matter and get away with it. So one is the university has to be held held to account. Um, and that's the aim of the, the legal action that's being uh, taken at the moment or be, beginning to be taken. Now, obviously, um, usually in, in litigation of that kind, the, the result of that is, is normally some kind of damages. In other words, some kind of financial compensation. It doesn't actually solve the problem that we're, we're confronted with which is that the students need to finish their, their courses and their, their studies. So in addition to that uh, legal action, we're also searching for a new home for the course, for the students, for myself to carry on that work. And, uh, you know, I'm speaking up and down the country and talking to other universities to see if that's something that we can organize because that's something that needs to happen you know, sooner rather than later, so that even more damage is not done. But I, I, we don't think at the moment, although 
um, that legally we can force the university to, uh, you know, to re-employ me and to re-establish the course. It could be possible, but it's it's probably unlikely. Um, but holding them to account is definitely what needs to be what needs to be done. Now, on to more positive aspects of your journey and your story. You have been shortlisted for the 2023 Wolfson History Prize. Can you please tell our listeners more about this? Well, the Wolfson History Prize is awarded every year to a book, which, in the opinion of the judges, is... uh, I guess a well-written history book, uh, something which presents history in a readable way for a gen- for the general public is, is essentially what it's about. And so, um, yeah, I'm very pleased to say that my book, uh, African and Caribbean People in Britain, a history, has been shortlisted. Um, there are six books shortlisted. Um, and uh, all of the shortlisted authors are awarded something. Um, and then there is a kind of grand prize. There's one winner who wins, you know, so many thousand pounds. Um, and that award ceremony is going to be held in roughly two weeks' time on the 13th of November. So then we will know, you know, who's won and who hasn't. Um, the Wolfson Prize is seen as the most kind of prestigious um, prize in this country for a, a work of history, for, you know, for a his history book. So um, that's, you know, we can say that's a good thing. It, it gets more exposure for the book and more exposure for the history in the book. Uh, which is, you know, which is a, a good thing. Um, and, you know, obviously if, if my book won the overall prize, then that would be even more exposure for the history. Not just that I've written a book, but this is an important history. It's an important part of the history of this country. Uh, and that, uh, you know, those of African and Caribbean heritage in this country are important and have made an important contribution and so on. So that's so it has that significance, that importance. Um, yeah, I think that's uh, essentially what the Wolfson Prize is about. Now, earlier in the interview, when asked our audience questions, there were some terms used within the questions that you felt were colonial words that should not be used. As this show is all about sharing wisdom to uplift and inspire, is there any further terminologies or words used descriptively or geographically that fall within this category that you feel um, that our listeners should be aware of and you'd like to bring some, shed some light on those words for our listeners? Oh, well... Um... No, I think that it's just sometimes it's important to think about words that are used. Um, and as I think I explained earlier, sometimes various Eurocentric terms are used that 
are maybe misleading or kind of discriminatory in the way that they're used and it's just good to think about how we use them so people talk about the middle east well what what does that mean really well why do we use that term sometimes that term is used um to refer to north africa sometimes it's used to refer to western asia but it's essentially a you know a eurocentric term for a particular geographical part of the world and it's just important to think about why that's used and from whose perspective things are being presented um, it's not like a you know it's uh, not a worst offense that anybody can commit to use that term but it's sometimes good to think about these things another term that people use is the word tribe but what does that really mean why why when people talk about collectives of people in africa do they use that word but when they talk about collectives of people in europe they use a different term so why not use the same term if we're talking about nations for example the english are generally considered a nation well then so are the yoruba so are the zulu so whoever we're talking about and nations have particular rights and so on and certain characteristics so why distinguish and use one term for one group of people and one term for another. So those were the kinds of things that I was um, just kind of making a point about that it's good for people to, to think about these things. And within your field of history, which other individuals' work do you really admire that you kind of like to, you know, make our listeners aware of that maybe they can look up their works as well? Um, well, it depends. I mean, as far as British, uh, the history of African and Caribbean people in Britain, obviously there are lots of people who've um, written works in the past that are useful. Um, there was a book a long time ago written in the 1980s by a guy called Peter Fryer called Staying Power. That was a very um, useful book. I would like to think that my book is, uh, you know, is, is equally useful, and so on. so those the, that that book was uh, very very useful. I think in regard to um, the history of Africa, there are different books that I think are. Um, you know, have been are useful ways of looking at um, Africa, African history. One, I suppose, is Walter Rodney's book, How Europe Underdeveloped Africa, which gives a very useful kind of orientation. It's, it's in some ways, it's it's quite a small book which deals with quite a lot of the history of Africa um, another historian who writes very interesting books uh, is a guy called Basil Davidson um, who's written who's a was a British historian wrote many many books on the history of Africa that again gives a very useful kind of perspective on things um 
Then there are people like, um, I suppose, Sheikh Anton Diop, whose main, main work, a lot of main work, looks at ancient Egypt or Kemet. Um, his work is very interesting and helpful for thinking about history of ancient Africa in particular um, in uh, maybe a different way. So there, there are many, many, many writers, historians whose work is useful and it's important when you're studying history to look at um, various historians, different perspectives on things and try and form your own you know, opinion of things to learn from others, but also to um, form your own opinion, and in particular to look at the evidence that they present. So it's not just opinion that you want, but what evidence do people present to support their ideas? That's always very important. What do you feel is the most important aspect of your legacy that you would like to be remembered? I was talking earlier today and I said that one of the things that's important about the work of historians, particularly in Britain, but maybe more widely, is that you have to, being a historian is not just writing and teaching, but it's also, um, you know, like fighting for things, really, particularly our history is not always or is very often hidden or neglected or marginalized or distorted. And so you have to defend that history. You have to fight for it. You know, it's... it's. Uh, and so some of the work that I've done um, to encourage others to engage in that struggle, particularly young people, so setting up the Young Historians Project eight years ago, I guess it was be one of those things which, um, you know, has brought together young historians of African and Caribbean heritage to engage them or help them engage with history and to develop uh, research projects and to present their research to a wider audience. Those those kind of developments are important or the History Matters initiative that we started in 2015 or 2014 actually to again to look at the kind of problems and issues that um, have an impact on particularly young people in this country and to try and develop um, work to, to change that situation and so now we have those some of those young people have got involved in that work we now have the history matters journal which is online which comes out quarterly so if anybody's writing about history of africans in britain um you know whatever whatever they're writing about whatever they're producing it can be presented in that journal we hold conferences every couple of years, again, encouraging young historians to come forward and present their work. So I think those are the kinds of things which um, 
I think are important and uh, it's always important to try and build things that can make a difference um, and involve other people in the work that you're doing and as a um, you know as a professor or as a senior person it's your responsibility to you know not open doors but to, to encourage younger people to assist younger people to find ways of helping young people develop um, in this field so that that kind of work is something I think is is, is very important and your final selection, your Gregory Isaac selection, could you tell us why you chose this selection, please? Well, this is another, you know, great song from one of my favourite singers. Um, it's also a kind of philosophical song um, about, in a way, about keeping going, if you like. Like I said, that, um, you know, you take one step at a time and, yeah, well, so one one coke or fill basket is is the, the essence of it. But in life, that's also a part of life. You keep going, you keep doing something every day, and it adds up to something important. So, yeah, that's why I chose it. Well, thank you so much for sharing your time and your wisdom, and of course, your works and selections with all of us. You're very welcome. Anytime. Are there any final words of positivity you'd like to leave the listeners with? That maybe words that you use on a daily basis, or maybe you'd just like to share with the listeners to carry on in their own journey. Yeah, I mean, I think that the words I often use are those from Frederick Douglass, who said that if there is no struggle, there is no progress. He said more than that, but that's the essence of what he said. So that we should see struggle as part of everyday life that without it we we don't progress individually we don't progress collectively we don't progress as a people we don't progress as human beings without struggle so we have to embrace that struggle and uh that's how we change the situation that's how we change the world that's how we exist as human beings so as i said before we keep going in that struggle never give up and uh, that's how the world has changed and made a better place. I hope you've enjoyed this week's episode. If you would like to connect with this week's guest, all of their links are in the description. If you haven't already subscribed to Reggae Uprising podcast, please do so wherever you're listening so you don't miss out on a future episode. And of course, you can also subscribe via Danil.live, which is www.danil.live. Al.live. That link is also in the description. If you'd like to recommend anybody, if you'd like to connect with the show, if you'd like to share some wisdom, you'd like to share your favourite reggae songs, any questions, please feel free to connect there via the contact page as well. Make sure you're back here next Wednesday for a fresh and new episode. I hope you have a wonderful week. Until then, and as always, blessed love ah, and no one of these fine days the table's gonna turn my way so go on and have your fun
One, one. 